Hello, and welcome to April's IBMS pod. In this episode, we catch up with Ian Davies, who is a senior lecturer in the School of Life Sciences and Education at Staffordshire University. He is also one of the select few to make the 2020 Pathologist Powerlist for Lab Heroes. Then, in our Lab Life section, we speak to biomedical science students who created a new magazine during lockdown. But first up, here are the latest headlines from the IBMS. Here's the latest news from the IBMS. Biomedical Science Day will take place this year on Thursday, the 24th of June. Whatever our options and however we end up celebrating, we hope that you will help us make Biomedical Science Day lead to greater public understanding of the biomedical science that lies at the heart of healthcare. Also this month, David Wells has been appointed as the new Chief Executive Officer of the IBMS. David is currently Head of Pathology at NHS England and an IBMS Council member. Commenting on his appointment, David told the IBMS, As a lifelong member who has worked as a biomedical scientist, it is a huge privilege for me to now lead our professional body. Applications for this year's Chief Scientific Officer Healthcare Science Awards are now open. The Healthcare Science Awards celebrate the tremendous contributions and achievements of the healthcare science workforce and the impact they have on patient outcomes. IBMS members are encouraged to apply. As part of our drive to move away from single-use plastics, we've recently announced that the Biomedical Scientist magazine will be delivered in even more sustainable wrapping. From this month, the wrap will be either a recyclable and biodegradable white paper envelope or a compostable material. You can find more details about all our stories in our show notes. Hello to welcome Ian Davies today, a senior lecturer in biomedical science at Staffordshire University. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ah, it's a pleasure. So um, tell us, Ian, how did you get into biomedical science in the first place? Because you were a practicing biomedical scientist for quite a long time before you moved into education. Is that right? I was, yeah. So I, uh, I was a biomedical scientist for about 19, 20 years before moving across. And originally, I, uh, I suppose I was at school and I liked biology. I liked anything to do with human biology and physiology. I'd watch all the programs on television that were hospital related. I, I suppose careers wise, all the advice was, well, you need to do medicine. And I didn't really want to do medicine, um, but there was no real other advice of what to do. Um, I went and did some work experience, as you, you do, because of the one year in sixth form. And because it was hospital related, I went to the hospital and I was put on a ward. And I think it was fairly clear to them quite early on. I didn't really want to be on a ward. I wanted to do something else. And they just sent me off to the path lab. And they, they sent me off to uh, the microbiology department where I spent a fortnight and didn't even know that existed and found it fascinating and Met then uh, Ian Park, who was a lab manager, who was a, became a lifelong, career-long colleague. And found it was really good, found what I needed to do, and then applied for biomedical science and did that as a degree and completely opened my eyes to a career that I just didn't know anything about. And do, do you think it's still the case now that you talked about how the first time you went into the lab, you are, I did not know this existed? Do you think that's still the case for a lot of people now? Or do you think people are coming to understand that there are labs there and that there are people who have to go through their diagnostics? I think so. I think it's better. Uh, I still don't think it's perhaps universally known. And certainly the outreach we do with schools and colleges is enlightening sometimes. And uh, from, a, from the teacher's point of view, they find out a lot more about the profession. But I think as a profession, we're far more open, we're far more outward looking. 
certainly events such as Biomedical Science Day and all those sort of activities, National Pathology Week, Healthcare Science Week, we really are good now at banging the drum. And so although there are areas where maybe it's not that clear and maybe we don't fully understand what we do, I think it's, it's far, far better than it was when I was looking for a career. And then going back to the days when you were starting out on your career, what, what was your path from when you were in the lab? What happened then? Okay, so I worked originally in haematology and blood transfusion and spent a little bit of time doing that, then moved across to clinical biochemistry. Uh, and that was at a time when all labs were starting to look like they were going multidisciplinary. So I thought early in the career, let's have a little bit of both uh, and, and see where we go and actually spent then the, probably the next 15 or 16 years or so in clinical biochemistry uh, in a couple of hospitals, mainly in uh, Staffordshire, and then became interested in training, took on a few senior responsibilities, started to realise that if I was interested in training, I could get to go and look in other labs and I could help do portfolio assessments and I could meet people from different departments. And I found that really exciting and really interesting because in a lab, Sometimes we don't get out very much. We don't get able to see how other people work. And getting involved in that was really interesting and exciting. So I became a training officer. I got a senior post that looked after the management of training. Became involved with the um, employee liaison committee at the local university. And from that, got invited to do some guest lecturing. And I think that's where I, I got that spark to think, I quite like doing this. I quite like to be involved in developing a future generation. I quite like uh, keeping myself on the ball by having to teach meant that I had to learn and I had to uh, understand and keep up to date. And I felt that was really useful for me. Um, and I was getting to a position, I was becoming a lab manager. I probably didn't fancy spending the rest of the career as a lab manager. And I wanted to have a little look at what else was available. Um, I spent a bit of time doing a clinical academic internship. So that was a, a scheme put on by the National Institute for Health Research to develop um, non-medical research. So all the professions, physios, OTs, radiographers were all part of this program. And again, that was nice. Because it meant mixing with different people, different professions, getting a different view on things. And then a position became, a lectureship became available, and I moved across. And I, I, I've never considered it a career change. It's just a, a change in focus, really. I'm still very much a biomedical scientist. I'm still very keen on what's happening in the labs and how we can contribute to that, not just in training the next generation, not just in education of the, the future workforce, but also how we can work together on current um, issues, so how we can work with the current workforce, how we can develop people already in post, how we can better those links between universities and practice, and you know, how we can work together in a more connected way. And that's, that's something that really keeps my feet on the ground as a biomedical scientist and something I really enjoy. And from everything you've talked through there, it sounds like you've worked in a lot of different areas. You've got lots of different experience. You've dipped into different specialisms. Um, do you think that multidisciplinary approach is still something that's seen as key? And is it something you try and instill within your students? Or, or do you want to give them a grounding in a specific area? We, we like to keep a bit of multidisciplinary focus because I think even, even if you then go off and specialise 
quite deeply in a particular area, having an understanding of how the system works. And that's not just within the lab, that's understanding how it fits with other healthcare science specialities, how it might fit with the management of a hospital, how it fits with tests that are done in different departments or in different areas. I think it's all really important at that, at that educational level to have that understanding. It gives you portability. You can move between departments at that early career stage. Um, but it also, I think, leaves you with that feeling that as your career does develop, it's okay to diversify. It's okay to then, you, you're not in a box. You're not, you're not stuck in that, that job for, for as long as you want. You can move around. And I think being able to appreciate that right from the start, right from the get-go, and understand that there are lots of pieces in this jigsaw and it's okay to be part of any of those and you can move around. I think it's really important. And when you first moved to the university, when you first became a, a lecturer there, you were in charge of setting up the pro, one of the programmes, is that right? It is. So, yeah, when, when, I, when I moved across, one of the first things on the, on the, on the to-do list really was to look at developing our part-time provisions so looking at how we could support um potential students who were already in work so people that may be working in laboratories as pathology support workers or associate practitioners that had got the potential and the drive to become biomedical scientists but didn't really have the opportunity to do that without leaving work and studying full-time or by trying to fit in part-time work uh, and, and getting the funding and so for that so we met um, with local employers and colleagues that were, you know, mine from, from when I was in the labs to think about what would work quite well. Um, we've always had a part-time program at the university, but it was always difficult sometimes to fit the needs of a part-time student in around delivering a full-time course. So we were looking at something that would be completely different, something that would be a little bit more accessible geographically, so it wouldn't require everyone to traipse in once a week and have a study day on campus and uh, it would it would give a bit more flexibility to learn a bit more remotely it would take in the experience that was being developed in the workplace because we shouldn't see workplace education and university education as being completely different um sort of dichotomy that they have to work together and sometimes we don't realize how much we learn every single day in the workplace we just take it for granted that it's work and it it really isn't. It's really developing a, a professional identity and professional knowledge. So what we did was develop this um, blended learning approach, this blended learning, meaning a mix of academic study, workplace study, some study days on campus periodically through the year. But as we were doing this, it, it timed just as the apprenticeship standard came out for healthcare science practitioner. And of course, the discussions of that were from a very similar place because that had been developed by the workplace as well, the standards that they required. So actually, when we looked at what we were proposing and what the standard was proposing, they just dovetailed because they'd both come from the same need, I suppose. So we were able to embed all of that apprenticeship standard within our course provision and get it accredited by the Institute, approved by the HCPC, and could then launch that as a one of the first degree apprenticeships for, for healthcare science. Um, and what that did was it targeted exactly the people that we wanted, people who were working in the lab or potentially were going to, for jobs in the lab at uh, an unregistered level, but had that, uh, that um, potential and that drive to really move forward. And there were quite often people who had uh, 
either missed the opportunity early in their career, so they maybe hadn't gone to university. They'd probably landed in pathology sometimes by accident. They'd seen a job or maybe even been redeployed into pathology and it was really interesting and something they didn't know about. And you know, having all those, I wish I'd have done this when I was younger. And we were able to sort of highlight these people. And this is brilliant because, you know, for us as a university, the, the whole widening participation in AT is really important and getting people from non-traditional backgrounds, raising aspirations, passing that then through families is, you know, it makes the job really satisfying uh, more than anything. Um, but because of that, and because we were able to link that to the apprenticeship standards, that then opened up a funding route for the trusts. That they were, it, it wasn't then a dilemma that we got someone really good that we could support. We haven't got the funding to put them on a part time degree. It meant that that funding was available for them through the apprenticeship levy, and so. It's been it's been really popular. It, 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 it took off in the first year. We then extended the numbers over the next few years. And we're just about to, well, we're recruiting now into our fifth year of the course. Our first cohort of students are about to graduate in a couple of months' time. And so it's been really good. It's been really, it, it's been really fulfilling just to see the students, particularly over the last year working through COVID, just to see how they have developed both in terms of their knowledge skills but also their identity and you can see almost year by year them becoming that biomedical scientist you can see that change in identity as they become more autonomous it's great it's been, it's been really good and you thought a lot of the words you mentioned there diversity and underrepresented backgrounds why are these things important for the workforce why why do you care about them because i mean it's just essential isn't it it's, it, it's essential for the workforce it's essential for society that we 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 fully understand the people around us, that we're represented. We've, we've got people working in the lab with such diverse backgrounds and experiences and skills. And we just need to, we need to appreciate that. We need to see what everybody brings um, and all their various different experiences bring to the table. And that's good for a workforce. It's good to have that diversity in the workforce. But it's good for us as a society. You know, we, we need to be representing uh, everybody. Everybody should have a, a seat at that table. Um, so for a whole variety of reasons, it's just the right thing to do. It's, it's you know, the, the workforce in the NHS is a beautifully diverse workforce. Um, but then having a program such as this and, and other programs that then open up all of the opportunities to everybody means that that diverse workforce then can flourish, can move forward, it can progress. And that's, that's just brilliant. That's just brilliant for society. I completely agree. And that seems like a nice note on which to hand over to my co-host, Jordan. I'm just going to be talking a little bit more about the pandemic and the effects it's had on education. Pandemic has been particularly tough on members of the profession as a whole. And as an academic biomedical scientist, I'd imagine you've, you've had your own unique set of challenges adapting courses for remote learning and providing support to students on placements. Could you tell me a bit more about the challenges you've had working during the pandemic and how you've managed to cope with the extra pressure of the situation okay yeah so i mean we were obviously keeping an eye on developments fairly early in january when there were first reports of this potential pandemic we're coming through and, and i think from that point onwards we've got an eye that things may change that we would have to start developing different practices and um, we were also quite quick to involve with in teaching because obviously this was a live experience that we could use and we could get students working on uh, 
various different projects, various different um, bits of research around it. So sort of from late January onwards, we've got students working out roadmaps to look at how we might deal with a pandemic. We've got them working on communication plans, all of those things who are making use of this live, this live developing scenario. Um, and a few things spring off from that. So we were quite quick. One of my colleagues, uh, Arthur Hosey, was very quick on media. So we were getting out, talking to the local media, making sure that we were doing our part as scientists and communicators to be out there talking to the, our local population. And that was really important. Um, as it became clear where this was heading in terms of lockdown, then yes, there was a, a, a big need to get things delivered remotely. We were fortunate in a way that we were approaching um, the end of term or certainly coming up to Easter where we got a little bit of a natural pause there to regroup and refresh and try and work out what we were going to do. We were fortunate in a way that we'd already got experience of delivering distance learning and blended learning, both from the apprenticeship and from various master's courses. So we, we got things in place that we could um, bring out quite quickly. So that, that was quite useful and quite good. Um, obviously, coming with challenge because we're all in exactly the same position as everyone else. We were all then computers, laptops, everything bundled from the offices and, and heading back home to set up uh, and balance that with homeschooling and caring responsibilities and all those other things. So the initial the initial period was one of um, stress. It was difficult, but it was also a focus of well, let's let's just focus on what we need to do uh, to keep the students. Bearing in mind that all our students are all um, in exactly the same position. They've got all their own difficulties. Let's see what we can do just to make this last few months of teaching uh, work online the best we can. Let's make sure we can get the assessments transferred online so we're, we're assessing what we need to assess. And then let's use the summer to think about the plan moving forward. So in terms of teaching, then it was looking towards this academic year. And we've delivered everything in a blended approach, so a mixture of online uh, teams meetings, one-to-ones, and then getting students in on campus to do practical work when we can and when it's safe to do so. So it's it's been uh, a challenge all year, um, but it's a challenge that everyone's risen to. You know, both academic staff, technical staff, and the students. Everyone sort of pulled together because I think it's important we've we've had to pull together. Uh, and it's, it's created that identity amongst the group that we've pulled together. I mean, looking forward, I think that there's a lot of lessons that we learned originally in that first few weeks of lockdown that have carried forward. There are certainly things that we would continue to do. There are things that we'd want to change. But I think it will change the shape of how we deliver education, certainly in the future. Just on the challenges that students have faced, particularly in the difficulties, what are some of the hardships? that have emerged for students and how have you combated those or mitigated against them? Okay, well, I mean, for, for a start, just, just from their um, position that um, students find themselves in, that they were um, obviously having to work from home, from, from wherever home was for them. That meant yeah. that we had to, uh, in, in some cases, try and repatriate students from campus back to their home safely. Uh, some students just wouldn't have the means of being able to access uh, material. So we were having to look at how we can uh, work with students with limited Wi-Fi or without access to um, appropriate laptops or so forth. So the university put in a, a, a 
big efforts of resource to try and make sure that no student was disadvantaged. And if that meant sending laptops down from the post and getting them delivered to students remotely, that's what we would do. Uh, moving forward into this year, we uh, had a big hardship fund. There's been a, 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 a real significant amount of money put forward to support students for all of these things. And if, if that means yeah, increasing their Wi-Fi or whatever kit that they need to access remotely, we've, we've been doing that. But also, student body is a very diverse body. Um, it's easy on the on the watching the media, I suppose, to think that they're all eighteen to twenty one year olds that just go back home and go in their bedroom and access online. And you know, the student population is so different to that. We've got students that maybe would be estranged from their families, or we've got students who are from abroad, or have got carer commitments and children at school and not at school and having to be looked at at home. So. It's, it, it is a real challenge, and I think it's easy to um, underestimate how challenging it has been for students. Mm-hmm. And so all that we can do is be responsive to that, understand that, uh, treat the students as individuals, work out what their individual problems are, and be quick to identify when students aren't engaging and not see that as um, uh, a barrier particularly, but see that as an alert that we need to work around that, we need to contact the students, we need to be on board with being proactive in reaching out to them and finding out what those barriers are. Mm. And for any students who thought they might have missed out at all on practical learning or might not have been able to complete their portfolio, is there anything in place to help those students who've missed out? Okay, so in the, in the main, the, the only problem in terms of delivery has been placement because getting into hospitals to do clinical placements has been very difficult because obviously... In terms of supervision in the trusts, in terms of being able to have people sitting next to you and work through um, material with you or being able to shadow people is very difficult, particularly when the trusts themselves not only are really busy, obviously, at this particular time, but also have got to work through their own social distancing uh, as well. You can't just have more people in the department. You need to have fewer people. So the, the placement element has been difficult. and so. We've been looking at different ways that we can uh, support placement. We can't offer the full clinical placement experience, um, and that's something that we'll have to pick up afterwards with individual trusts trying to be more um, available for students coming in after their degree. In terms of the um, learning through the course, actually, although it's been delivered very differently, it's all been there. So we've managed to make sure that all of the learning outcomes have been met by the various different approaches we've put in. We've been able to get students back onto campus to do quite focused laboratory work. Um, uh, Although class sizes have to be smaller and we have to uh, run the same practical sessions a lot more frequently so we can get more students through in smaller groups. We've actually managed in between the various aspects of lockdown to get that practical work done on campus and signed off um, really quite effectively. And that's worked really well. And I think that was one of their key issues right at the start was to make sure that when we built the system of what we were going to deliver this year, that that practical work was the the key focus and then we would build everything around that. We were fortunate before Christmas to have the period where we could work really um, intensively with students on campus. So by doing that, the majority of the practical work got done then. So as we went into the lockdown after Christmas, a little bit of the pressure was off. 
Mm. Students have, have come back in for the last few weeks and have been working in the labs. But actually, the majority of the stuff was already done in the bank. Um, and that, that was um, fortuitous, really. It was, it was good planning. Um, it, was, it, was, it probably wasn't planned in the, the thought that there'd be a lockdown, uh, a second yeah. lockdown. But at least having it there in place meant that we got that provision to cope with that. And the final question from me then is, we kind of touched upon this topic earlier, it's moving forward in terms of higher education in, into the next academic year and so on into the future. What model of teaching and learning do you envisage will now emerge? Will remote learning stay in place for some time or will you move back to delivering lectures in person kind of model? I, th- I think it will be very much a blend. Um, I think we- we, we won't want to go back to an entirely remote model. Um, you know, the, it, there are advantages uh, and certainly advantages of being able to access materials at different times. But there are elements of that that are really helpful. But equally, I don't think we'll move back to what we used to have, where we would have big lectures all the time and every bit of learning would be through lecture work. I think it'll, it'll be a blend. Um, and I think as, um, as the pandemic's gone through, Lots of people have been doing lots of research on what's working well and what's what's not working as well. And I think what we've discovered and what we what we're coming to is a very interesting model that will will shape, I think, education in the future. And it's it's, it's perhaps where we as a university were looking to move towards over a more strategic plan. So maybe our twenty thirty vision would be looking towards this sort of model. Well, what we've done is sort of accelerate things at pace, and we've been able to be resourceful and see what works and, and bring everybody along with us. So I think, I think it will be a blend. We'll, we'll be doing on-campus work. We'll certainly be doing all the practical elements and all of that. We'll have far more group teaching, so problem-based teaching, looking at small groups that can be a blend of in-person meetings. They can be then online discussions afterwards. They can be people dipping into different resources to answer different questions. There will be elements of large lectures they could take a different form. So rather than having everybody all in one space talking to 100 people, you may do them as sort of podcasts and have then an interactive discussion afterwards. So I think there'll be lots of things that we will take forward from this. I don't think there's any thought that we'll go back to what would have been a very traditional method of education. And even pre-pandemic, the movement was away from that formal lecture style, very more looking at active learning where we're we're looking at solving problems, not just giving knowledge across, but actually involving students a lot more in the responsibility for learning. Mm. So a much more blended online approach to learning will you see will be emerging in the future. Absolutely. Far, far more far more blends, far more blend. And, that, and that's that's not yeah. just in terms of online, that's in terms of the whole on campus experience as well. Because you know, learning is is very Difficult sometimes, and sometimes we think that learning happens in in a lecture theatre um, when we're giving the information. But the learning's taking place afterwards, where people are talking about it and discussing it. So it, it's finding out where these things are happening and creating the infrastructure and the environment for that to happen. And that that can be on campus, that can be in breakout rooms on Teams. It can be in a whole load of different places. And it's just having that awareness of where that's happening and making that infrastructure available for it. Sure. On that note, then, I'll pass you back to Rob for the quick fire round. Okay. Rob? Brilliant. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, just before, one quick follow-on question, Ian, of um, whether this new kind of phase of blended learning that we might be coming into, 
with the student body being so diverse and having so many different population sectors with such different needs, could this actually be an empowering kind of liberating moment for students rather than seen as a kind of, you know, oh, well, you know, this is the result of the pandemic. Absolutely, absolutely, Robbie. It it certainly is. Because what it does do, it allows far more um, availability of the material. So students who may be commuting in, uh, and we have a lot of students who commute into campus, obviously that can cause problems because although they may be coming in half an hour on a train, there's, there may be an hour or so transport before that, after they've sorted the kids out and all of these things. Well, actually being able to access material at a time that suits them makes it more equitable. If there's a sudden family crisis and they have to deal with other things, at least the material's available and we can go back and we can, we can be far more uh, flexible in how we deliver that. So no, you're quite right. I think it will open up a whole level of um, equity in how we deliver material. And I think that's absolutely a good thing. Brilliant. On which note, let's move on to the quick fire round. So I'm going to give you three sentences, Ian, or the start of three sentences. When I stop speaking, I'll just say to finish the sentence. So the first one is, my science or education hero is? Oh, um, definitely uh, Joe Horn. Joe Horn. A previous, uh, she's previously been on this podcast, of course. Tell me why, Joe Horn. She has indeed. Well, I think there's just the um, the honesty and the openness um, that she has about you know, her career journey and the inspiration she gives to others, I think, is just phenomenal. I completely agree. Um, the next question or the next sentence, the most important thing with education is to... Make it uh, an experience that students enjoy and make it meaningful to them. And I think by that, uh, you know, we see education sometimes as something that we impart on people. And actually, it's about the people developing themselves. So it needs to be fun. It needs to be enjoyable. It needs to have a purpose. Um, and so, yeah, it, it needs to be focused upon, about what works for them. The next sentence is, the future of the biomedical science workforce is? Really promising. I'll end on one more. As soon as this podcast is over, the first thing I will do is? A cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Fantastic, Ian. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Nice to speak to you. So welcome to April's Lab Life. Now, during last year's lockdown in November, students were largely confined to their rooms, with socialising and face-to-face interactions on campus very limited. In response to this strange situation, a group of students at the University of Salford decided to come together to create a new biomedical science-based magazine. So this month, I'm joined by students Nadia Patel and Caitlin Owen, who are two of the magazine's editors. So yeah, I've had a look at the magazine and it's really high quality and you've got a lot of in-depth science stories in there. I guess, could you tell us just a bit more about how this magazine came about in the first place and what made you want to become involved in the project? Okay, so this, this goes back to the beginning of the academic year, uh, about October, November time, where one of our tutors, Dr. Sarah and Anne we were, um, had a meeting with all of us and we said, well, what are we going to do? We're mm-hmm. in this situation um we're all stuck at home and we need to find a way of still 
um, trying to get that experience uh, of, you know, expanding our skills, um, but just shifting everything online. And what's, what is the best project to try and channel that? And one of the things that came out of that meeting was this magazine. Um, and it, the, the focus was basically that just to try and ex- try and do something completely different and use the exper- use the situation to try and adapt and um, do something that we hadn't done before. And um, so, yeah, we sort of we started off from that just saying we wanted a magazine and we workshopped it. We went ad- we explored lots of different routes. Mm. Um, and this sort of science-based one was really the one that, that stuck out to us. Yeah. For anyone who hasn't had the chance to kind of um, read the magazine yet, how would you describe it? So we have three sort of main categories in the magazine and its main purpose really is to discuss topics in biomedicine. So that's where you'll see some of our uh, pieces by students on different topics like how climate change is impacting pandemics and things. We also try and demystify biomedical careers a little bit more, not just being a biomedical scientist, but that too. And uh, but also things like uh, some of our students go on to do physician associate studies. Um, Lastly, it's just about trying to strengthen our student community of uh, biomedicine students just trying yeah. to bring us all closer together whilst we can't actually socialise. Yeah. And was it successful then in combating some of that social isolation as a university student um, on campus? Definitely. I've not had the best luck with like making loads of friends whilst I've been at university. Mm. Um, it's just not really gone that way. But then, you know, so obviously I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, final year, that was my last shot to like, you know, really get stuck in with stuff. Uh, and meet some more people and then everything goes online and you're kind of thinking wow like you know that's <laughs> this this year's just gonna be a complete fail and then I sort of saw about I think Nadia uh it might have been Nadia that posted into our team site for the uh, biomedicine society that we have at Salford yeah uh, about this magazine I thought oh that's something I'd, I'd really really like to get involved in and through that, I've managed to have probably more of a social connection with people on my course than I have done even before the pandemic. I mean, me and Nadia, just as an example, have a really good relationship now. We're both really good friends with Bruce and so many other students that have been involved with the magazine and with the society in general as well. I would say it's been really successful on that front. Oh, excellent. So as well as editing, you've also both written your own feature-length articles for the magazine. Caitlin, your story focused on how animal agriculture might be increasing the risk of pandemics and disease spread. Can you tell us a bit more about that story and why you felt passionate about it? So I've followed a plant-based lifestyle for the last five years initially because of my concern about the impact of animal agriculture on the environment. So I am, of course, interested in the other relationships that consuming animals has with the world. And through that, I started to find that there is an impact on disease spread and pandemics. And I should say that not everyone is in a position to like cut out animal products because it is an important source of nutrition for people say living in underdeveloped countries where food sources are scarce but the impact that animal agriculture has 
can't be ignored and increasing human demand for animal protein is listed as the uh, first of seven main drivers of pandemics uh, set out by the UN in its report preventing the next pandemic that it released in 2020. The article that I've written first outlines that zoonotic diseases, which are diseases that originated in animals, are behind about 75% of new and emerging diseases. And that also that is actually an increasing trend in outbreaks of disease around the world. And then the article discusses the reasons that might be behind this, like large numbers of genetically similar animals of the same species being kept extremely close together. Antibiotic abuse in animals, which is actually improving. Low biodiversity, for example, domestic animals make up about 60% of the land vertebrate biomass of the planet, uh, where wild animals only make up 4% and the rest is humans. And increasing wild animal to human interface because of things like changes in land use for animal agriculture. Nadia? Mm -hmm. Just looking at this page on a blog on the website and says you enjoy reading about technological advances and you've even wrote about groundbreaking vaccine technologies for the first issue. Could, so could you tell me a bit more about that story? Yeah, the uh, the section that I, I've been focusing on is the science yeah. and the news. And so really um, sort of news stories and breaking them down from a scientific perspective using sort of our knowledge as just un, a basic undergraduate level um, understanding of science and then relating that to news stories. Um, obviously, the, the main thing in the news at the moment related to health and biomedicine is the pandemic, is coronavirus. And um, at the time where we released the first issue, it was where the first vaccines were being rolled out um, and were being approved, rather. And so there, there was a lot of scepticism and there was a lot of sort of misinformation on what exactly these these do. Mm. Um, these vaccines do once entering the body. And that's basically what that first piece um, sort of breaks down. Um, from a biological perspective yeah uh, yeah was it challenging to create this whole magazine remotely in lockdown like how many of you were involved in like how was it kind of managed well there was a, a sort of a main team of three students which would be m me uh, Nadia and Bruce who edited it and really kind of drove uh, it forward Mm. We also had support from um, Amy Pinnington and Dr. Sarah Nambar at the university. Uh, and then we have had to help from all sorts of other academics at the university. Like external professionals have agreed to be interviewed for us and things like that. And then we've had tons of students that have volunteered from uh, the Biomedicine Society. Was it challenging creating this remotely, not being together? Um, in person definitely we had to kind of learn how to take massive advantage of technology as probably everyone has it you know under the current circumstances it is a lot more difficult not being able to you know get together and sit down in the same room sort of show each other your ideas and things like that but obviously the best alternatives you have are to do video calls kind of share your screen and things uh but we we constantly stay in touch over whatsapp and teams uh, any kind of new idea that pops into my head, it goes straight in there. And I'd say that's been the, the biggest asset to being able to create the magazine, that and um, 
we you know like online applications for obviously graphic design um like we used a website called Canva and you can work on projects uh, together in real time so we were able to all build the magazine together uh online whilst we're sat on a call and mm. you know with, without that I don't think we'd be able to kind of achieve what we have yeah. I think Microsoft Teams has been a really good advantage as well um, just having all of the whole student community in one place um, and being able to access everyone like that is, is also quite valuable. Thank you to Caitlin Owen and Nadia Patel for coming onto the podcast. And if you'd like to read the first edition of the Salford Students Magazine Bioscientist, it's available to download now for our show notes. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.